You're listening to the Lost Mountain Podcast. Lost Mountain exists to help all kinds of people find and follow Jesus. We hope today's message encourages you towards a deeper relationship with Christ. If you have any questions from today's message, email us at info at lmbc.us. Link is in the show notes. It's always a, a great morning when you get to see um, God through His Spirit harvest lives into the kingdom, make those who had been blind see, who had been in darkness, um, living in light now, who had been spiritually dead, uh, made alive now by the grace and the mercy of God. I'm so grateful for that and grateful for all of you who have worked with all of them um, in various ministries at the church as God uses all of us together um, to make the gospel real in the lives of those around us. We're going to continue through um, the book of Luke this morning. We'll be in chapter 5, chapter 5 of the New Testament Gospel of Luke in the Bible. Um, while you're turning there, I just want to say that one of the, the great challenges, I think one of the greatest challenges for many of us in uh, contemporary society where we are um, is the temptation to regard our faith in Jesus as just one area of our life, right? We've got our faith in Jesus, and then we've got all of these other areas of life, all these other roles that we play. It's almost like having different folders on a laptop, and you uh, open the Jesus folder when you need him. You open him Sunday morning sometimes. Uh, you open him sometimes when you're uh, nervous before a test that you haven't studied for. You open it sometimes when you're up for a promotion that you feel like uh, someone else might get and so on and so forth. But you close it down when you're uh, recreating, when you're with your family, when you're um, doing other things at work. And I think Matthew 5, the verses that we're going to look at as Jesus begins to call his uh, first and most um, near followers in his day, uh, explode that idea of Christian faith. The late Dallas Willard said in his great book, The Divine Conspiracy, uh, that the idea of having faith in Jesus has come to be totally isolated from being his apprentice and learning how to do what he said. In other words, having faith in Jesus, believing in Jesus for salvation has come to be completely isolated from actually being a disciple of his, from following him. That's the reason we ask two questions of every uh, baptismal candidate. Do you confess Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior? Yes. Do you commit to follow him from this day on? Yes, because those two are linked in a way that cannot be separated. Jesus won't be relegated to one or more areas of our lives. He came to be with us. He came that we might be with him. He's with us when we're cleaning our house. Some of you will be encouraged by that. You need God with you when you're cleaning your house. He's with us when you're driving your car. Some of you, that's great news as well. He's with us when we're at school, when we're sitting on the couch or the bed playing games online, when we're in our hotel rooms, when we're in the office, when we're in the gym. He came to be with us. N.T. Wright, surprised by hope, said, what you do in the present by painting, preaching, singing, sewing, praying, teaching, building hospitals, digging wells, campaigning for justice, writing poems, caring for the needy, loving your neighbor as yourself, will last into God's future. These activities are not simply ways of making the present life a little less beastly, a little more bearable 
until the day when we leave it behind altogether. They are part of what we may call building for God's kingdom. To be called into salvation by God's Spirit through Christ is to be called into the work of building God's kingdom on earth. Let's look at verses 1 through 11 of Luke chapter 5. One day, one day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. He saw at the water's edge two boats left there by fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. So he pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, this morning we thank you. We thank you for being the God who comes to us, for being the God that reaches down into our sinful state of darkness, despair, and death. God, you are the one who pursues us, who takes the initiative in our lives. So God, we thank you for that. Father, I pray this morning that throughout this room and those watching online, we might, by your grace, have ears that can actually hear spiritual truth, God, eyes that can actually see, minds that can comprehend, and hearts that desire to receive. God, be with us this morning. Open your word to your people by your spirit, that we might be formed into the image of your Son, in whose name we now pray. Amen. All right, let's look at a little context here of the setting, and then um, I'll kind of organize what's unfolding here under three specific words. But look at Matthew, or Matthew, look at Luke chapter 5, verse 1 again. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, that's another term for the Sea of Galilee, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. The setting here seems a bit 
chaotic. This picture of people crowding around him is not a settled or a calm picture. They're settling around him to hear the word of God. And there's no other reason that people should come to church. There's nothing else we should hear from those preaching and teaching but the word of God. That is our commitment here to maintain the centrality of Scripture in all that we do. Scripture should never be used um, as a, a book to find a verse to quote to launch into some kind of tirade that a particular man or woman wants to talk about. He's offering him the word of God, the words of life, and they're listening. They're crowding around, and Jesus is observing all that's happening here. He's watching fishermen clean nets. He's seeing the boats that are pulled up to shore. He's watching the crowd pressing in. Sometimes people will ask me, did you hear or did you see this in service? Yes, I hear and see everything while I'm preaching. Those of you who've been built by God to teach or to communicate know the reality of this, that while you're doing this, your mind is constantly seeing and processing and taking in multiple things around the room. Yes, I, you'll see somebody go, well, that's the fourth person to leave since I've been talking. I wonder where they're going. I wonder if they're coming back. I wonder if they were a guest I just ran off or perhaps a longtime member who's finally had enough. Jesus is watching that. Times have changed. I remember growing up, they took you out back and shot you if you got up during church. Right? I don't know, how, I don't know if our bladders were different, but regardless of age, no one ever left during the service. Right? You just sat there through it. Um, and they were long and tedious. But Jesus is taking all of this in as he's preaching. Verse 2 says he sees at the water's edge two boats left by the fishermen. These are professional fishermen, commercial fishermen. There, Jesus is likely doing this in Capernaum. Capernaum is a massive fishing hub for commercial fishing. And they're by their boats washing their nets. Washing their nets. Jesus goes and he gets into one of the boats that belongs to Simon. You remember if you were here last week or maybe the week before, I don't even remember what week it was. Simon um, had seen his mother-in-law healed by Jesus. So Simon had some kind of awareness of Jesus, some kind of an acquaintance with Jesus. And maybe Jesus said, hey, Jesus didn't, but Matt would have. Hey, in return for the healing, I'm going to borrow your boat for a little while. Let's go out. But Jesus wants to, to push out from the shore a bit so that he can better see and better teach those who are crowding around him. They put out a little from shore, verse 3 says. And then Jesus sat down, taking what you know by now is the traditional um, uh, posture of authority for rabbinic teachers and taught the people from the boat. Talk to people from the boat. Now, what we're about to see is a command given by Jesus, a confession made by Peter, and then again, back to Jesus, a commission given to Peter and his fellow fishermen. Let's look at this command here in verses 4 through 7. When he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. 
But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come and help them. And they came and filled both boats so full that they began to sink. Now what's going on here? You have to imagine this in that setting and then we're gonna move it into ours today. Here are these commercial fishermen who, if they knew anything, they knew the lake before them. They knew their nets and their boats. They knew when and how to fish. This was their domain of life. This is what they did. They're cleaning their nets after having fished all night and not caught anything. They knew that the best time and the best place to catch fish on the Sea of Galilee was at night in shallow waters closer to the shores, not during the day in the deep. And in a sense, Jesus is stepping out of his, his Sunday school room now into their lives in a way that many of us, by the way we live, confess that we don't particularly like or intend to welcome. Michael Wilcox says, as long as Simon's boat is being used for a pulpit, the owner has no objection to Jesus saying in it what he likes. But when it reverts to being a fishing boat, it is Simon's once more. And Jesus no longer has a say in how it is to be used. You see this initial objection from Simon Peter, master. We've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. These guys were tired. They were washing their nets. They were done with their work period. Their shift was over. They were cleaning their nets. It's bad enough for men to come in without a catch anyway. And then they're cleaning their nets and they're gonna go home and get some rest. And basically, the idea here is that you can preach from it, but if you're going to use it to fish, Jesus, you're going to have to do what I say. I'm not going to do what you say. You're a carpenter turned itinerant preacher. I'm a commercial fisherman. This is my domain. Now, you and I don't say those words just as Peter didn't say those words, but we live like that all the time. By keeping Jesus relegated to some sort of spiritual, personal place in our life, not as the one who guides every waking hour of our days, regardless of who we're around, regardless of what we're doing, regardless of where we are. We typically think, Jesus, but this is about sales, not your stuff. Jesus, this is about teaching school. You might've taught one thing, but you don't know what it's like to be in a public school now. Jesus, you, ne ne you never ran a business. I mean, you can see from the guys you chose that you didn't have a lot of business acumen. Jesus, you didn't know anything and don't know anything about maintaining a home and a family. It's not what you do. You do Sunday school, you do men's ministry, you do women's ministry, you do missions. You don't know what it's like to deal with limited resources. Your thing is church. Underneath it is this denial of the sheer brilliance and divinity of Christ himself. And can I just say, the largest area, which we just did a whole series on, where 
professing Christians are doing this vocally and out loud has to do with these issues of gender identity and human sexuality. We're like, look, Jesus, we know you know your thing, but you don't know what it's like in our day. And so we're going to follow you. We're going to trust you when it comes to life after death. But we've got this over here. And can I just tell you, there's no such thing as that kind of faith biblically. None. If Jesus is Savior, Jesus is Lord. If Jesus knows about heaven and hell, about life after death and life after life after death, then he knows where you are this morning, what's happening in your life. He knows how the world that he created as an instrument of God through the power of his word and sustains with his powerful right hand right now. He knows how the world works, including sexuality. And can I just say that underneath this particular issue is all these issues, but underneath this so um, immersive one in our culture of gender identity and human sexuality is simply a direct denial of the authority of God. God is not boss, I am boss. It's splitting churches and entire denominations, but it's much wider than that. Scott McKnight in his book, One Life, Jesus Calls and We Follow, says Jesus wants far more than to be accepted into one's life. He wants to take over. And his essential call is to trust him enough to surrender one's entire being to him. I wonder where you are this morning with that. I wonder if you've ever really gotten to a place in your life where you've surrendered your entire being to Jesus. You have released all of your demands on your future, your desires, your hopes, your regrets, your fears, your mistakes. You said, Jesus, I give it all to you in trust and faith. When Jesus calls you to obedience, it involves the people around you as well. Look at this. It's, it's quite amazing. And I, and I want to I want to focus in on the, the latter half of verse 5 because Simon Peter does say, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But he doesn't stop there. He says, but because you say so. Can I just plead with you, church, that that is discipleship in a sentence. That is what it means to be saved. That is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Is I feel this way, but because you say so, I will do it. It's scary, Lord, and I don't think it's going to work out, but because you say so, I will do it. That doesn't make any sense to me at all, God. It's not what I feel in the deepest places of my being, but because you say so, I will obey. There needs to be no more convincing for true disciples of Jesus other than the fact that he has said so. Are you with me? He has said so. He does not come in as Savior to places where he is not Lord. But they do it. They let down the nets. They let down the nets at a time of day that you don't fish and in a place where they knew they didn't catch fish. In the deep, in the middle of the day. And they caught so many 
their nets began to break. What Jesus was experiencing was the, the inbreaking of the, the majesty and the power of God, what Peter was experiencing through Jesus into an everyday experience of his life. And it was completely unexplainable. There's no way to explain what happened. Peter has to yell. He's like, hey, guys, the rest of you, get in the other boat and come out here and help us. And I just want you to know that just as Peter needs others to do what Jesus has commanded him to, so you do as well. You cannot live out a relationship with Jesus Christ alone. You're not built to. God hasn't designed it that way. You've got to have other believers. In fact, much of the blessing, the affirmation, the confirmation, the assurance, the provision, the guidance that you will receive is not going to be given to you by God in a supernatural way in your closet with just your Bible there. He's going to give it through his people. He's going to give it through his people. So they come over with the other boat and there's so many fish that it fills both boats so full that they began to sink. They began to sink. Now, let's imagine how a typical response would be. Let's imagine men, first of all, blue collar type men, they're out there. They've worked all night and hadn't caught anything, but now they get the biggest catch of their life and likely the biggest catch anyone had ever seen in that area before. And they land and they hop out and they ask people to get their phones out. They're posing in front of the boats, take pictures, make sure you take it vertically and horizontally so we can post it, right? They're doing TikTok dances, holding fish in each hand. Look what we did, what we did, what we did. I don't know why I just did that. Um, but Jesus is there with them. That's not the response. That's not the response. They didn't send a, a carrier pigeon off um, to let their friends on other parts of the lake know that they were losers um, because they probably didn't catch anything last night either, but we just caught it all. Look at what happens following this command. There's a confession as a result of what happens in verse 8. We'll read 8 through 10. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, go away from me, Lord. I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished. This, this word astonished is a picture of being aware that this was something entirely unique. It's, it's a word that points to sort of awe-inspired worship, that they were well aware that there was something at work behind the scenes of the natural forces of creation. They're astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. And Jesus says to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you'll fish for people. There's this confession. What happens when Jesus does this is Peter is aware in some unique way of God's presence drawing near. And he is suddenly deeply aware 
of his sinfulness, of his rebellious nature before God. A growing sense of personal sin always correlates in Scripture with the nearness of God to human beings. And it makes me wonder about your situation this morning. Are you, are you growing? Are you experiencing the nearness of God in a way that leads you to be deeply aware of your own sinfulness? Not if you are a follower of Jesus, saved by his grace in a way that crushes you, but results in, in gratitude, in continual repentance and confession, and worship to the one who saved you, who is cleansing you and purifying you and sanctifying you as you go. Are you aware this morning of your sin? Because this is the response of people who are, I can't look, go away from me. I'm a sinful man. There's something uniquely different about you and me. In you, I experience holiness and righteousness and purity and true light and true wholeness in a way that reveals everything in me that's not. Isaiah had the same experience. Ezekiel had the same experience. We're not used to this. This seems abnormal to us. But it is the goodness of God that reveals our sin to us before it destroys us. It is the goodness of God that will not overlook sin but will punish it eternally. Miroslav Wolf has said over and over, he's a, uh, a theologian from Croatia, that it is, the, it is the, the fantasy of suburban Americans to believe that a just God would not punish evil and sin. I think he's right. I think it's also true that most suburban Americans just don't believe we're evil or that our sin matters that much. But let me tell you something. When you draw close to God, you know God's presence is with you when you are deeply aware of your sin, not um, able to continue to live this kind of cultural Christianity that so permeates our society. Again, Dallas Willard says that consumer Christianity is now normative. The consumer Christian is one who utilizes the grace of God for forgiveness and the services of the church for special occasions, but does not give his or her life and innermost thoughts, feelings, and intentions over to the kingdom of the heavens. Such Christians are not inwardly transformed and not committed to it. See, Peter, Peter was well-versed in the Old Testament Scriptures. He was active in synagogue attendance and prayer. He could have outquoted scripture and outprayed all of us combined today at any time. But it was as the presence of God drew near to him in Jesus that he began to understand in a deep and personal way his own sinfulness. John Stott in his classic book, Basic Christianity, which we'll be giving, um, those who are baptized today will get packets this week uh, from us as a church with some things in there, including a new Bible, a book for each one of the students, and Barbara uh, will get a new Bible and then a copy of John Stott's Basic Christianity. But he says in there, Jesus never concealed the fact that his religion included a demand as well as an offer. 
Indeed, the demand was as total as the offer was free. If he offered men his salvation, he also demanded their submission. He gave no encouragement, whatever, to thoughtless applicants for discipleship. He never lowered his standards or modified his conditions to make his call more readily acceptable. He asked his first disciples, and he has asked every disciple since, to give him their thoughtful and total commitment. Nothing less than this will do. Have you done that this morning? Brother, sister, that makes all the difference in the world in your life. That's all the difference in the world between playing church and being a Christian culturally and being a New Testament believer saved by God's grace and a disciple of Jesus for whom the question over and over and over is, what does Jesus say about this? Finally, there's a commission. Part of the the beauty here is that what Simon Peter doesn't understand but Jesus knows is that Jesus is the Savior and the answer to Peter's sin. So instead of pushing Peter back, instead of saying, you're right, Pete, you are a foul human being, I'm out of here. I'm going to go hang out with the Pharisees, some of the teachers of the law, cleaner type folks. You uh, blue collar, beer drinking, commercial fishermen aren't my style, my speed. He doesn't do that. He reminds him, begins to remind them that he is also the answer to his sin and has a plan for Peter's life. Pick it back up toward the end of verse 10. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. Isn't isn't that interesting? I mean, isn't it interesting that all Simon had done was catch the largest amount of fish he'd ever caught? And in an instant, in his conviction and in an awareness of God's presence, having drawn near through the majesty of Christ himself, the Son of God in human flesh, Peter almost can't see anything but his sin. And Jesus says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. It's when we're running from our sin, friends, that we ought to be afraid. Not when we see it and confess it. Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will fish for people. From now on, From now on, day in and day out, week in and week out, month in and month out, for the rest of your life, you've had a living encounter with me. Now, his confession was more conviction than conversion. We know that uh, that it takes time for the disciples to come to faith in Jesus in a conversion kind of way, as it does in our lives most of the time as well. And yet, Jesus knows that from this day forward, nothing will be the same in Peter's life or in the lives of his fishing buddies. So they pulled up their boats on the shore, left everything and followed him. Left everything and followed him. He said, hey, don't worry about fishing for fish anymore. You're going to fish for people. And it's really interesting here. Luke uses a specific word that means to catch alive. He's particularly contrasting the fact that catching fish, they die and you eat them. It's kind of a tongue-in-cheek way of saying, we don't intend you to do this with the people you're catching. You're catching those people to life. 
But part of what Jesus is doing here is teaching them that the same way in which they just caught the fish through the word and the power of Jesus himself is the same way that the followers of Jesus catch men and women. It's the same way ultimately really that God through the followers of Christ catch others and redeem them. It's so simple, we miss it. Even though we understand extreme commitment, this is an extreme commitment, right? They're leaving everything they've known and they're following Jesus, including their big catch of fish. Can you imagine the wives right now? Have you lost your mind? We've never seen this kind of haul. Do you know how much this is going to bring? But we've got to follow Jesus. Jesus who? We didn't catch his last name. Get in here, Peter. Right? I will just say this. There's a, in Peter's confession, there's a sense of being called to Jesus. And that never exists apart from a commission by Jesus. From now on. To be about reaching people. That is your responsibility as followers of Jesus. God has placed you in neighborhoods. He's placed you in workplaces. He's placed you in different seasons of life. He's placed you in particular families. He's placed you in particular schools for reasons. Another quote from Dallas Willard here. He says, we fail to be disciples only because we do not decide to be. We do not intend to be disciples. It's the power of the decision and the intention over our life that is missing. We should appreciate or we should apprentice ourselves to Jesus in a solemn moment and we should let those around us know that we have done so. It's in that kind of commitment that we're sent out, commissioned as the people of God who come in each week and out each week into the various domains of life where God has placed you. Each and every one of you in place there by God. And we catch people and people are caught through our lives just as the fish were caught by the power and the word of Jesus Christ. That's all we have and that's all we need. And I think in churches across our country, we've lost our faith in the word of God. And we feel like we need everything else in the world. We need a good show Sunday morning so that people won't be busy. I saw this church, and I use that word in the loosest possible sense of its meaning. Uh, I saw a, a, a section of their Easter service on Instagram where their pastor, all cool and cultured up with, you know, anyway, um, is up there. The Easter bunny standing down here dressed up, and they've got this kind of a WWE mat laying beside him. And so the, the Easter bunny is vying with the power of Jesus for uh, for Easter, at one point, the, the pastor dramatically jumps off the stage, goes over, grabs the Easter bunny, and to the cheers and applause of the quote-unquote members of the church, the people present, lifts up the bunny and slams him down on the mat. And I thought, what a bunch of ridiculous foolishness. What a bunch of sophomoric, silly, 
cheap, shallow, pathetic. I'm going to stop because words come easily to me. (laughs) What a pitiful, insidious, stupid. (laughs) Vince just told me to stop. (laughs) Stupid substitution for the message of the gospel. Slam all the bunnies you want down. Make the people laugh and the crowds cheer. Our hope is in the word of God, written and living. Finally, John Stott says this, and this is a challenge I'll leave you with. The astonishing paradox of Christ's teaching and of Christian experience is this. If we lose ourselves in following Christ, we actually find ourselves. True self-denial is self-discovery. To live for others is insanity and suicide. To live for God and for man is wisdom and life indeed. We do not begin to find ourselves until we have become willing to lose ourselves in the service of Christ and our fellows. As the band makes their way out on stage and begins to prepare to lead us in response to the Word of God. I wonder if you believe, I wonder if you believe the truth revealed in this text, that in trusting Jesus into every domain of your life, like He he won't be relegated to one file on your desktop. If that's it, you actually don't have Him. Doesn't matter how often you click on it. But that in trusting him and inviting him in and walking in submission to him day in and day out, every domain of your life, in submission and death to yourself, are you actually made alive? Are you changed from one glory to the next? That's the truth of God this morning. It's an offer with a cost. Let me ask you to stand. In just a minute, I'm going to pray for us. And as I do, our offering ushers are going to make their way to their positions with their buckets. Um, When I finish praying, we'll receive offering this morning. Ask you guys to drop in your connection cards, drop in your giving envelopes as those buckets come by. Always remembering what we just saw, that in Christ is abundance of life, of provision, of healing, of wholeness, of commissioning and purpose. Let's pray. For more information about Lost Mountain, visit us at lmbc.us. Thank you for tuning in today.